welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Welcome, Miss Kaylee Walters. Uh, this poem that I'm going to read actually came out of um, class when I was in school. Uh, we watched a video about uh, language and the centrality of the humanness of it. And in this video, they told a story of a uh, man who was born deaf and um, was uh, acting out, actually. Um, and they couldn't understand why. And then they finally realized that he had absolutely no concept of language or communication. Um, I don't know how they missed it, but they did. And he had an epiphany moment and realized that a table is called a table. Just like, you know, we've all heard the Helen Keller epiphany of water. But the thing is, Helen Keller was like eight or nine, I think. This man was 27. 27 years old and had absolutely no idea of language. And I kept thinking about it after class. I mean, it was like thought, like emotion. Like what changes when you don't have a way to express it? So this poem came out of that. Called The Difference Between Brain and Body. Adam's tongue molded by the potter's hand. Fauna tamed. Plastic bends, changing in less time than the fall leaves, green to brown, mine dried. Born into a generation that has forgotten the comfort of human touch. Let the winter air arouse the silent house, record the memories, like the open eyes of a man who realizes everything has a name. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour my flesh, it is my enemies and foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. Psalm 27, verse 1 through 3. Over the last several months, I've been suffering random hearing loss. These are, there are days when I can hear okay, and, and days when sound becomes so low and so distorted, I become a deaf person. I've recently seen doctors. They can't tell me why this happens. For years, my left ear's hearing has slowly disappeared for an unknown reason. I've only been content with receiving sound from my right ear, but now my right ear is going like my left, and I don't know why. But when the wicked advance against me to devour my flesh, I've tried to stay positive. I remind myself that it's not my nature to be this grumpy, griping, this grumpy guy. I tried, I will not be that way even if I struggle with the uncertain. But my inner optimism only goes so far. What do I do when I run out of options? The war break out against me, even then will I be confident. A few months ago, my wife Jen and I took a trip to San Francisco 
to attend her brother's wedding. Awesome San Fran. It was my first time being there. It was wonderful to see Jin's family from Minnesota in this eclectic, gorgeous Bay Area. During traveling, my hearing was, was fine. But once we got there, my hearing dropped. And I became mostly deaf. I felt awkward and disorientated, but the trip was not about me. It was about the wedding. So Lord, help me get through. I ventured forth trying to make the best out of the trip. The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? My hearing was so low that I almost was left behind at Mears Woods because I didn't understand when it was time to go. And my hearing was so, you know, distorted that I, I couldn't understand the guests at the wedding reception if they were speaking English or Chinese. My heart will not fear. My mother-in-law suggested that Jin and I visit a church downtown San Francisco known for its labyrinth. We both wanted to see downtown, and I was mostly deaf, so <laughs> we decided to walk there. How hard could a nice walk downtown San Francisco be, right? Has anyone ever been to downtown San Francisco? Yeah. Our walk was not a walk. It was a mountain climb. <laughs> I mean, we were almost climbing up downtown sidewalks, you know, you know, hill on top of hill, mount on top of mount. Then we finally approached a plateau called Knob Hill. And there, sitting on the center of the knob, was this massive church. Sun-worn and frayed from our hike, Jin and I walked inside. As we entered... I felt God's peace. It was so real, I, I could almost touch it. I, I don't know many places like that. Even the spectacular Mirrors Woods was, was not like that. As we entered, a choir was singing in the distance. I could hear them. They sounded like angels. A scattering of a few tourists and locals listened quietly in pews. And there, on the floor of the grand entrance of this church, was a labyrinth. As the choir sang, Jen and I prayed while walking the labyrinth path. Through its twists and turns, one could feel the tension of being led on a journey, not knowing how it will end, but knowing that you will eventually reach the center. As I walked in prayer, I asked God, why? Why was I losing my hearing in my 30s? Why couldn't I hear on this trip? Why? Then I heard a response. And not a response that I could hear with my ears, but a response I could feel in my heart that was articulated in my thoughts. God said, suffering was a great mystery. 
and that I wasn't the only one who walked a labyrinth over the centuries who contemplated suffering. And that he too suffers. But then why do you let suffering continue on this earth? Why don't you just stop it? This is what he said in my spirit, word for word. From great suffering comes great beauty. That changed me. God's statement changed my whole presence in deafness. Now when I lose my hearing, instead of asking why, I ask God, what beauty am I supposed to see? Maybe it's the compassion of someone who helps me. Maybe it's the beauty of the grace he gives me at that moment. Maybe it's something beautiful inside me. I'm, I'm not a master at it, but I'm still walking that labyrinth path. It's twists and turns, feeling the tension of being led on a journey, not knowing how it's going to end, but knowing that I will eventually reach the center. So we're in the last week of a series called Wells and Fences, and uh, just a brief introduction as we kind of jump in this morning. Uh, This has been an exploration really of kind of two ways of thinking, one being bounded set, uh, in which the question that becomes most important is, do you believe what we believe? Uh, We should get some pictures of those two up here, I think. Uh, Do you believe what we believe? on one side, and on the other side, where something is at the center, a well, so to speak, and the questions that become important are, what direction are you headed, uh, and what's your trajectory, or what's your momentum? Um, And so, in the midst of this series, offering this as a possibility of uh, Awaken being this centered set where the, the life and the death and the teachings of this Jesus and the resurrection of this Jesus become the thing that's at the center... Um, we've been welcomed in uh, officially. Officially, we were welcomed in as a covenant congregation this past, uh, yeah, Friday. So Ben and Toff and, uh, and I went to Detroit, to Motown, and we uh, had a little bro time in Motown. It was good. It was good. We, we, uh, <clears throat> we'll leave it there. Pillow fights and other things. It was good times. Um, <clears throat> so this last, this last uh, affirmation is freedom in Christ. And so, um, uh, this one for me is, uh, as far as New Testament theology goes, or New Testament ideas found in the Bible, this one is one of the most important ones that we can get. Um, And so this morning, I want to root this teaching in really two passages of Scripture. Uh, Galatians 5 and Romans 14 both talk about this idea of freedom in Christ, um, Paul sets it up, uh, the theological, uh, in, in Galatians 5, and then he takes that idea and he sort of gives us a, 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 an actual example of a church in Rome that's, that's going through something where freedom in Christ would be applied. So if you have your Bibles, Galatians 5, and I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to jump around. I'll kind of tell you what verses we're going to read, but I wanted to just key in on a couple of the, the real uh, important ones. So this is Paul, Galatians 5, he says this, It is for freedom... That Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you 
that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Now, pause for just a second. Major debate among the, new, the, the, the church of Jesus at this time, mostly Jews becoming uh, Gentiles coming in. So the Jews, of course, marked by circumcision as a mark of the old covenant. And so the debate was, do these new Gentile believers coming in need to be circumcised? So this is Paul's addressing. He says, again, I declare, every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is obligated to obey the law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Now skip down to verse 13. He says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So this is the point of freedom, not to indulge, but to serve one another. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. And here he quotes Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> now skip over to, uh, to Romans chapter 14. As you do, I'll say this about Galatians. This is the why of what Paul is saying. So he sets up this theology, this theological framework and he says, essentially, you have been justified, which is to say, God's view of you as justified, not guilty, is not because of the law, it's not because of circumcision, it's not because of anything that you do, but rather it's because of faith that you have in Jesus' work. So you get what is Jesus's, essentially. What has happened, this, this rising from the dead, this new life in Christ, you get in and through faith in Christ, not because of the law. And he says, and some of you, you're trying to appeal to the law. You're sort of saying, let's go back and apply these laws of the law. And essentially what he says is, because you do that, then you're, you're, you're bound by the law, or the demands of the law are now on you, and you've missed out on the grace that's offered in Jesus. So if you want to go back, good luck, go for it. You can't do it. But good news, grace has been offered in Christ, so don't go back, is essentially what he's saying. So he sets up this theological framework, and then he goes in, in Romans 14, starting in verse 2, he says this. One person's faith allows them to eat anything. So this is a debate about food sacrifice to idols, okay? He says, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Verse 5. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be, now listen, each should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. Whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give, gives thanks to God. Now skip over to verse 13. Therefore, he says, because this is true, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to be a stumbling block or put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of your brother or sister. I am convinced, this is Paul personally, he says, I'm convinced being fully persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as clean, then for that person it's unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not 
eat, or do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ has died. Now skip down to verse 19. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, now get this, he ends this with, whatever you believe about these things, these sort of non-essential issues, eating food, sacrifice to idols, drinking wine or not, whatever you believe about these, keep them between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. Pray with me if you would. God, as we open this text, give us wisdom to see that which is true. Uh, Help us to see and navigate this tricky and often um, misunderstood idea that we're free in Christ. God, as the teacher, give me, uh, give me discernment in your eyes to see what's true and offer it to this community. I pray that those seeds of truth would be planted in the hearts of, our, of this community and nourished by the living water of Jesus would grow and bear good fruit of joy and patience and gentleness and love and mercy and respect and self-control. I pray that those seeds would bear that fruit, God. And I pray that our study of scripture would always lead us to an increasing capacity to love others and a deeper trust that you are good and that you are, in fact, putting the world back together. We pray this in your name. And all God's people said. Okay, there is so much in these two passages. We could do a seven-week series on freedom, uh, unpacking all of the things that Paul's doing here. Obviously, I can't do that. So here's how I want to do this today. I want to break this into two parts. Historically, what does this mean for the covenant? How have we navigated this? And what are the implications of that? And then theologically, why is this important? Okay? So historically, I would say it this way. Very succinctly, the covenant has chosen to focus our energy and time on the things that unite us as followers of Jesus, not on the things that divide us. The covenant has chosen, intentionally chosen, to focus on the things that unite us and not on the things that divide us as people who follow Jesus. Historically, friends, you don't have to go far and you don't have to read too many textbooks or or go to too many churches to realize that there have been a plethora of things that have divided the church of Jesus over history. Can I get an amen? Things like the end times, when will Jesus come, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-rapture, the whole deal, right? When's it going to happen? Division, churches, denominations go in different directions over these things. Baptism, infant baptism, believer baptism, uh, how you should vote politically. Should we engage? Should we not engage? Uh, Things like uh, the gifts of the spirit, should they be used or shouldn't they be used? The sovereignty of God, right? Calvinism, sort of this sovereign view of God or a more open view, Arminianism, free will and choice, right? Whole denominations heading off in different directions over things like this. We could keep going on and on, but I want to make clear that in the end, these divisions or these distinctions, I would say, are the product of people's interpretation and reading of the Bible, right? What's not being, more often than not, what's not in question is someone's commitment to the scriptures or commitment to Jesus when we, when we have differences on these kinds of matters. But really what's at stake is how do we read and interpret the Bible, So when we come to things like this, where we disagree on something, it's important for us to remember that whoever's on the other side of whatever conversation you have, it's not because they're not committed to Jesus more often than not. It's not because they don't love the Bible. It's not because their commitment to, do you see what I'm saying? Often we sort of pit this, they're the other and they disagree and so they're wrong and they're bad and they don't love Jesus and they don't love the Bible. That's typically not what's happening. Um, It's not a question of that. 
Uh, have you ever heard of the Strengths Finder test? Gallup came out with this, this, this online test. It basically measures and, and tests somebody's skills and, and uh, skill set and strengths. And, and when it came out, it was really a, a shift in direction or a shift in philosophy. Previously, it was a lot about who are you, strengths and weaknesses, and let's, let's sort of build up or work on your weaknesses or shore them up, so to speak. What Gallup said was essentially, what if we, what if we highlighted the things you're the best at, and you invested the majority of your time on the things that you're the best at, what kind of a difference would that make? I want to liken the covenant's position on this, right, to focus specifically, intentionally, on the things that unite us and not divide us, it's a bit like Gallup. It's a little bit of a different way of looking at things, but I think it's really, really helpful. They've made an effort to be very concise and very articulate about what those things are, and they're the six affirmations we've studied over the past six weeks. The centrality of the scriptures, necessity for new birth, the whole mission of the church, the, um, the, the, fellow, the church as a fellowship of believers, right? this priesthood of believers, this, this absolute dependence that we have on the Spirit of God in our lives, and now lastly, this freedom in Christ. Um, I want to read something from uh, a book called Covenant Affirmations where we're getting a lot of this material because I think it gets it really, really well. So I'll just quote it. Within these parameters, the principle of freedom applies to doctrinal issues that might tend to divide. With a modesty born of confidence in God, covenanters have offered, get this, have offered to one another theological and personal freedom where the biblical and historical record seems to allow for a variety of interpretations. Skipping down, it says, the covenant church, uh, or this co- commitment to freedom has kept the covenant church together when it would have been easier to break fellowship and further divide Christ's body. Here's what this means for Awaken. When we gather on Sunday mornings, we have both Republicans and Democrats. We have people who vote a particular way for particular reasons, and off, my hope is that it's informed by their reading of the scriptures, their understanding of who the call, uh, the, the call of, of Jesus on the church and their lives, uh, and economic policy and how the church is supposed to be involved in all the things. It's all informed, right? And then we have people who, some of us who vote Democrat, some of us who vote on the other side of that, informed by scripture, Right? When we gather together, we have both Calvinists in this room who see God's sovereignty as, as um, really important and God being totally sovereign over all the details, and they've come to that conclusion through their study of Scripture. And we have some of us who have who've come to different conclusions, maybe a bit more uh, f- based on choice and free will of humanity. It's called Arminianism or open theism, both present in the room at the same time. This means that we have both... Um, people who are young earth creationists and folks who are evolutionists in the room, both informed by scripture. We have people who, on, related to marriage, egalitarians, total equal partners. We have some who've, who have, you know, through scripture that the man is the head of the household. My point here is this. All of us come to these conclusions, best case scenario, by reading the text and being informed by the text. And the point that the covenanters have always tried to make on this is these are outside of the essentials, right? These are not or, or maybe you would say it this way. These aren't non-negotiable. These are, not the, these are outside of the center of orthodox Christian teaching about what does it mean to follow this Jesus, right? And so when that happens, divorce and remarriage is another one. We have people who believe certain things about divorce and remarriage, very different, all informed by the scriptures, okay? On things that fall outside of this circle that we've been talking about, we give each other grace and respect and deference and we don't have to divide or it need not be a point of, of division in our church. That there are more important things we can agree on and we can link arms agreeing on those important things and do the work of the kingdom in the world. You tracking? 
Now here's the deal. Paul says in Romans a couple times, he says, be convinced in your own mind, right? So what's not being said is the things that fall outside of this circle are not important. That's not what I'm saying. They're absolutely important. How you vote is important. What you think about divorce and remarriage, it's important. Absolutely it's important. And I encourage you to have opinions, have convictions about those things and other things as well. But they are not, they do not necessitate the breaking of fellowship when we disagree on some of those things. Paul goes on, he says, whatever, uh, Romans 14, whatever you believe about those things, he says, keep them between yourself and God. So there are things we hold publicly, right? These are the, I would argue, the orthodox teachings about what does it mean to be followers of Jesus in the world. On something outside of that, Paul says, hold those between you you and God. Which is to say, and I'm asking you as a pastor, don't hold somebody else hostage to a conviction you have that, that on an issue that falls outside of the orthodox central teachings of Jesus. Which highlights the fact that how we hold the beliefs that we have is as important as the beliefs in and of themselves. Let me say that again. How we hold the things that we believe is equally as important as the things that we believe in and of themselves. I would argue that more often than not, what you believe, the what of the theology, is the most important thing, regardless of how you hold that belief. So often, unfortunately, that gets translated into people believe these things, and in doing so, they treat other people very meanly and and in in a terrible spirit. What Paul's saying, what I think the covenant has gotten on this one, is how you hold those things is as important as the things that you hold. Now, because... To, to hopefully base that in some sense of scripture so you're not saying, well, that's a, that's a nice opinion, Micah. I would, I would say, if you read Paul and you read Jesus, you hear this over and over and over again. Let us make every effort to do whatever we can that leads to peace and mutual edification. Paul says in Galatians, the only thing that counts, it's not a trick. The wording there, the Greek there, it's not a trick word. He's, the only thing that counts is faith energized, energeo is the word, energized by love. The only thing that counts, he says in Colossians, above all, above everything else, let nothing be over this. Clothe yourselves in what? Right doctrine. No, love of neighbor. Jesus says, if you're going to sum up the law and the prophets, it's love God and love your neighbor as who? Yourself. So how we hold these things and the, and the deference that we give to love of other is very, very critical, and I would submit really important theology in New Testament. Okay? Now, historically, this is what this has meant for the covenant. Now, theologically, why is this important? Or what, what's the, let's dig down a little bit deeper. And this, this gets me so excited. I feel like I've had all these thoughts swirling around on this issue, and it's sort of coming into focus for me. I would say it this way. You are free from, and you are free for. Paul says, you have have been set free. Uh, Because of Christ, you've been set free. You are freed from something, and you're free for something. So what are you free from? What's Paul really getting at? When Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, what is really at stake here? Turn to Genesis 3, if you will. Genesis 3. Come on. Says this. Now, the serpent was more crafty 
than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? It's my belief that this question is at the center. It is the core, it is the root of every problem that is in the world. Every, every, every ounce of sin, every ounce of brokenness, every ounce of something gone awry comes back to this question, in my opinion. Did God really say? Because here's why. Right underneath that small little serpenty question, did God really say, is the implicit doubt that everything you need has not been given to you. The word of God, God creates And it's this beautiful thing, and he says essentially this, everything you need, your life, your source, your value, your worth, your belonging, it's all yours. And the serpent comes along and says, did God really say? Or is there something being held back? Is God holding out on you? Is there something that God's not giving you? Is there more that you could experience that you're not experiencing? It's this doubt that God has, all that God has promised and called good. Do you really believe that God is good? Do you really believe that all you need has already been given to you? Or do you believe that God is holding something out, holding something back? Do you believe that the source of your very life, your value, your worth, your identity, Paul says, is hidden with God in Christ? Do you believe that? Because here's the payout. If you don't believe this, if you don't believe that everything you need for your source of identity and life and value and worth has already been given to you, then you have to get it somewhere else. If your identity, your very value, your worth, your belonging, your life, if it has not already been given to you in full, then you have to go looking for it elsewhere. And the nature of the human heart when we believe the lie of Genesis 3 that there's more for us and that not everything that we need has been given to us and we go looking for it elsewhere, here's how it plays out. I, in some way, shape, or form, enter a room and I differentiate myself from you and in some way, shape, or form, I figure out the ways that you don't measure up to me and the gap and the space that's left between there is what feeds me. Because my value, my worth, my identity, the source of my life is not complete and so I have to get it from somewhere else. And the only way I do that is comparison, judgment. This is the lie of the Garden of Eden that the serpent tells Adam and Eve. The knowledge of good and evil will give you life. And the friends, it's a lie! It's not true! You have been given everything you need, your source, your life, your value, your identity, your belonging. It is yours! And so this game that we play when we enter a room or a, or a relationship and we size someone up and then the, va- the, the gap that's left there between how, how far up I am over them is what feeds us and gives us value and, and a source and an identity. You are free from that. It is a lie that you are free to opt out of playing in. It is a game that you have been suckered into playing and humans have figured out how to monetize it and make it very subtle. And we feed it to each other. And in so many ways, every single day we wake up and we size up the other and we differentiate ourselves from them and the gap that we create in our mind and in our heart is the thing that gives us life and value and identity and belonging. And it's a lie. You are free from it. 
You are loved. You belong. Everything that you need has already been given to you. You do not need to look for life, value, identity, anywhere other than what has already been given to you in God. You are enough. Now, if you're freed from that, what are you freed for? This is the good stuff. This is the gospel. This is good news. You are free to agree with God that every person you ever come in contact with, the one sitting next to you, the one in your home, the one at your work, every human that you come in contact with, you are free to agree with God that that person is worth every bit of Jesus' death on the cross. You are free to agree with God that that person is, has unsurpassable worth, that they bear the image of the living God. You're free to agree with that and to bless them and to love them and to give them the, all that you've been given in God, which is love and grace and mercy. You're, you're set free to do that. You're set free to actually participate in that and to allow that to be the thing that flows through you and out of you because that's what you've received from God. Can you imagine what it would be like if the church globally did this in the world? Like how different it might be? If we just would love and ascribe insurpassable worth to people and agree with God that these people, whoever they are, regardless of what they've done, however they vote, whatever the position they have on this, that, or the other thing, that God's in control, that I'm not, and I just ascribe insurpassable worth to them, that every bit of them is worth Jesus' death on the cross. Man, I tell you what, that is like a weight lifted off of my shoulders. That I don't have to be the one in charge. I don't have to be the one who calls it out. I don't have to be the one who's, you know, got the hands on the wheel. I can let go and be free to do what I've been created to do, which is to receive love and a source of belonging and identity and reciprocate that, reflect that into the world. I think if we figure this one out, if we really press into this, that it would change our own experience of God that we would begin to know the love of God that is in Christ for us. If we will open ourselves up to the possibility of this, I think, it would, I think it would literally change our lives. And I think it would change the communities that we live in. That's my own personal hunch on this one. And it's the invitation that we give to you as a church. You're free. You're free. You're free. To love. To, to not size up. To not somehow believe that you're not enough. That they're better. That they do that better. That they do this better. That actually, I'm, I'm a little better than them on that. I mean, if they worked on it a little bit, maybe they could get to where I am. You, we don't have, you don't have to play the game. You can opt out. That is the radical move of Jesus. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.